Dear Father, we thank you so much for the witness of Abraham. We thank you for the record that you have preserved of your dealings with him in the birth of the nation of Israel. We thank you for the nation of Israel, how you have chosen them to work through them for the restoration of creation. We thank you for the Messiah who has come through this people. We thank you for the future hope that Israel has and the future hope that we have because your promises to Israel are faithful. We know that your promises to us are also faithful. We thank you for this wonderful prayer of Abraham, which we can see so much about your character and how you deal with the world and with individuals. We pray that the Spirit would fill us this morning as we read your word, as we study it, and as we apply it to our lives. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. This is a perfect passage to go to to show the patience of God. Uh, I know sometimes it might even test our patience having to sit through this uh, public reading, but it is a blessing to hear uh, God's word read aloud. So I'm thankful, Paul, for you doing that. This morning, we come to an announcement of destruction. Up until now, we've seen God dealing with Abraham and Sarah to confirm the covenant that he has to them. Uh, by which he will bring about to the Savior through the nation that will be born to Abraham and Sarah. This is number two in our current series here, uh, most of which will be occupied by the destruction of Sodom. So that we uh, are all on the same page as we go through this passage, uh, this is the main point that I'd like you to keep in mind as we work our way through the text. God takes the opportunity of timely judgment on Sodom to instruct Abraham concerning righteousness, justice, and mercy. Abraham, as the seminal head of a new nation, was given an example of extreme national judgment. Made possible by the perforation of nations at Babel, God will exterminate nations which oppose him on earth. Abraham takes the opportunity to learn about God's character and to test the doctrine of a faithful remnant. So we begin here with God's instruction to Abraham. We see the purpose for this entire interaction is tied up with God's purpose for Abraham. At the beginning here, we have a little transition. The text uh, in its theme, at least, has a large break, although we see that it is consistent with the same day. In fact, everything we see all the way through chapter 19 and even to the beginning of chapter 20 is all within a single 24-hour period. This all happens rather quickly. But after these two men together with Yahweh had eaten together with Abraham and promised to Sarah that she would be the mother of a son even in her old age, at this point, the men rose up from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. Now, we'll get into the text a bit, but I want to give you a visual of what this might have looked like. It helps to, to put our feet on the ground. Now, I don't have any pictures from inside Hebron. It was too dangerous. We were not allowed to go there. But uh, I do have a picture of Lachish, which is just about 10 or 15 miles west of Hebron, and Moresha, which is just south of that, this is very much like the land that Abraham would have been living in at that time. This is the kind of topography that these men had come and visited Abraham in, where he was dwelling. 
Well, as they move towards Sodom, this isn't necessarily a short journey. It would have taken the better half of a day. So it's probably getting towards evening as they do this. As you move east, the land gets a little bit more bare, a little bit more hilly, and a little bit more rocky until you get to the very barren Jordan Valley. Now at that time, it may not have been this barren. You can see the Dead Sea there in the foreground. And uh, there's two possibilities for where Sodom is. One is on the east side of the Dead Sea, and one is at the very bottom of the Dead Sea. And so they may have been looking off from an area very near this, towards this Dead Sea region, and seeing the city sprawled along the, uh, the base of the Jordan Valley. Now you remember in Genesis 13 that Lot had chosen the Jordan Valley because it was lush and green and fertile. And as we look at this today, and let me tell you, it is, it is not a very comfortable place to be in the middle of the day. It's not lush, it's not green, it's not fertile. Now looking from the other side of the Jordan, uh, this is a lot more like it may have been at that time since it's very underdeveloped on the Jordan side. And here we have the possible second location of Sodom. This is called the Kikar of the Jordan or the Circle of Jordan which is the one green spot left in the southern Jordan Valley. This may have been where Sodom was. In fact, this hill right there is where many people today think Sodom was. So this may have been the exact spot that these angels were looking over the edge with, together with Abraham and, uh, and Yahweh to look at Sodom. Now they had brought Abraham with them. Abraham was walking together with them in order to send them off. Again, this was not a short walk. It wasn't just walking them around the corner. He spent the better part of a day journeying with them to a point where they could see Sodom in the valley. This was no accidental coming along, but rather they would let Abraham come so that God could instruct him, as we'll see in a few verses. But notice as well here the fellowship that is occurring between Abraham and his God. He is journeying together with him after having, uh, well, not necessarily shared a meal with him, but served him a meal and stood there while he ate. And now Abraham is walking together with the Lord through the land of Israel. This reminds us of the Lord's attempted fellowship with man in the garden around the time that man fell. The Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Unfortunately, what he encounters is man in rebellion rather than man in ready fellowship with the Lord. But elsewhere where we see men walking with God, we see men in intimate fellowship with God. Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. As well, in Genesis 6-9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. And here, in Genesis 17, when God had first come to tell Abraham of this specific promise that a descendant would come through him in his old age and through his wife, and that many nations would come from, this, uh, from him, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Now these walking have the idea of 
moral, walking in God's will. But also we see in their fellowship. And so whether it be in the physical or in the spiritual walk, we see Abraham, a man who walks with the Lord. In this, we see that experience tied up with the spiritual promise of a future where we as well will be physically and spiritually walking before the Lord in the kingdom. This is what God is restoring through Abraham. And we see the the birth of that restored fellowship here with him as he brings him alongside as he is about to judge a nation. God has two reasons for bringing Abraham together with him. But first he asks a rhetorical question, probably in the hearing of Abraham, but directed towards the two angels. God often seeks counsel from his angels, not to see what he should do, but to bring his creation in alongside him as responsible partners. But here he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? God's about to wipe Sodom off the face of the map. Abraham would hear about it, certainly, especially since Lot, his nephew, is living in that city. What God is asking here is, should he let him know ahead of time? Should he bring him in on the reasoning? Should he use this as an opportunity to teach Abraham? And certainly he does, and these are the two reasons that he is going to teach Abraham. Since, being a reason or a purpose, Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. The problem with Sodom is it is a great and mighty nation in this Jordan Valley that had turned its back on God, that did not serve God in justice or in righteousness. But also because in Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So not only internally within Abraham's descendants and the nation that would come from them, God has something to teach them for the preservation of their nation. But he also has a reason for preserving them because all of the nations of the world will be blessed in the preservation of Israel. This is a very important moment in history because we see after these uh, last five chapters we've spent with Abraham where we see his faith maturing and growing, now God, as a friend of God, is able to bring Abraham alongside to teach him and to show him more about who he is, what his character is. We remember back in Genesis 17, 6 through 8, about a month ago, where God said, I have made you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. And I will fulfill my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. See, this covenant was not just between God and Abraham, but between all of the descendants of Abraham. And the purpose of it was to be to you and to your descendants after you, God. This restored fellowship where they would actually attach themselves to the will of God to do the will of God, and God would enable them to do this. He says, then I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is what it looks like for God to be someone's God, to bring them into obedience and to teach them who he is. In fact, that order may be a little backwards. 
And then in Genesis 12:3, we see from the very beginning of God's interactions with Abraham that he promised that in Abraham, all the families of the earth would also be blessed. God's isolation of Abraham was not a throwing away of the rest of the world and all the world's nations, but rather it was a preserving agent so that God could deal with this single family and bring the rest of the nations into blessing through the nation of Israel. Well, in order to fulfill these purposes with Abraham, to preserve the nation of Israel and to bless the other nations through the preservation of Israel, God has to teach Abraham about his righteousness and about the expectations of righteousness. We see right off the bat that God gives a reason for these purposes he has with Abraham. He says, for I have chosen him. Now, literally in the Hebrew, this means I have known him or have known him intimately. But chosen is a very good gloss for this because God has chosen Abraham for a very specific purpose. He has chosen him to be the head of a new nation, not one of the 70 that came out of Babel from rebellion, but one that God himself would be the father of. When he pulls Israel out of Egypt, he calls Israel his firstborn son. And from Israel comes the very Messiah who is truly his firstborn son or his uniquely begotten son. And so in his purpose that he has for Abraham to build this nation from him through which he will preserve and restore the world, he says, so that he may command his children and his household after him. Remember who God made this covenant with, this permanent promise of land in the Middle East and of a coming Savior through their line and of blessing. He made this with the entire house of Israel through all of their generations as an everlasting covenant and necessary for their preservation in each generation would be the faithfulness of that generation. And so each generation is to have before them the word of God. Each generation is to have at the forefront of their mind God's will for them on earth. And they do this through God's revelation. And for that to be passed down from generation to generation, parents will have to teach their children. Abraham is about to learn a lesson that he is supposed to teach to Isaac, which Isaac will then teach to Jacob, which Jacob will teach to his children. So that when Moses is bringing these children out of Egypt and he is writing this book of Genesis, he knows the story because Abraham was faithful to teach it to his children. And as Israel is moving into the land of Canaan to wipe out the nations in Canaan, they understand God's righteousness. They understand why it is necessary for God to bring this kind of judgment on these nations. If you read Deuteronomy 18 or Deuteronomy 20, you see the unrighteousness of these nations and the reason why God is bringing down a similar judgment on them as he brought down on Sodom. And we know that this is only possible because he divided the nations at Babel so that he could deal with them one by one, rather than judging the entire world like he did at the flood. We see that in Genesis 1 through 2, God created the world and he created it with man as its head with man delegated dominion so that he would rule on God's behalf 
according to God's will. Well, in Genesis 3, we see that this delegated dominion, this king who was supposed to rule on God's behalf, had rebelled against God's will, had chosen instead to follow the will of the creation, the will of the serpent, and had separated himself from God. This kingdom, this middle kingdom between God's universal kingdom and creation, was frayed. It was no longer, or it had no longer attached itself to God's will, but to Satan's. Genesis 4 through 6, we see this creation under the will of Satan continuing to corrupt itself and to deteriorate until it became necessary for God to destroy the entire creation and to start over again with Noah and his family, a family of believers, a family who attached themselves to the will of God so that through Genesis chapters 6, 7, and 8, all we ever see from, Ab- from Noah is, and so Noah did according to all that God had instructed him to do. This is the kind of faithfulness God is going to build a kingdom out of, a faithful people who have learned who their God is. As we saw just a few slides ago, Noah walked with God. He was blameless in his generation. He was a righteous man. And we see the same things of Abraham here. Now, in the life of Abraham, we see many failures. But we see that his faith, which had made him positionally righteous, God was able to use to make him practically righteous as well. To make him faithful. You see, the faith comes first in the building of faith, and then comes faithfulness. We don't make ourselves more sanctified by working. We make ourselves more sanctified by trusting in God's word to sanctify us. And so as they continued to depend on God's word, they were able to trust him. They were able to follow him rather than the will of the world. But what did God do in Genesis 19 with Noah? He established government. It's odd for us thinking that government is actually a creation of God, but it is. So often and in many nations, it is very corrupt and its will is separated from God's. But government was also purposed by God to be a preservative of life in this evil world. See, the one command that was given to these governments was to protect the life of the innocent by ending the lives of the guilty, just as God is doing here in Sodom. Just as God delegated to Adam in a microcosm his own purpose, where God created the universe, and then he puts Adam into a garden and says, now create with it. God creates man, and then he tells to Adam and Eve, make more. Here, he gives to Noah the command to rule in righteousness the way that God rules in righteousness. And this was the birth of government. But these governments, or this government, accumulated power and rebelled against God. At the Tower of Babel, we have the people of the world gathering together under the rule of a single man whose will was opposed to God's. And how does God correct this? Well, God comes down and he perforates the nations. He divides them and he spreads them. Because he had already destroyed the world once with water and he promised he would not do that again. How is he going to protect the world from fully corrupting itself as he had before? by dividing the nations so that each one of these groups can be dealt with one by one. 
And within each nation, they have the responsibility of enacting God's will. And those that separate themselves from God's will to such a degree that they no longer call good good and evil evil, but calling good evil and evil good. They no longer understand the righteousness of God. They no longer understand justice. But all of their ways become wicked and corrupt. God will deal with them. But he's able to deal with one nation without destroying the whole world because he has a plan and a program for this world until he is ready to draw it to a close. And that purpose is intimately tied up with Israel. And that is why he is training Israel as it is born into a nation, how to act righteously as a nation before the Lord. So that in Genesis 12, God is able to isolate the single nation of Israel to deal with them uniquely and individually so that in them, all of the nations of the world might be blessed. So God's lesson for Abraham here is to teach them how to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. God is going to enact justice on the standard of his righteousness. You see, good and bad, being separated from God, simply takes on a different standard. Rather than being measured up to God's perfect righteousness, it's measured up to man's uh, imperfect righteousness or lack of righteousness. We might judge something good or bad because we don't like it. But do we judge something good or bad because God does not like it or God has declared it wicked? That is what he is teaching Abraham here to judge the way that God judges and to carry out that judgment with justice. Remember in Deuteronomy 6.3, actually we haven't done this here before, so hopefully just in your own reading of Deuteronomy, you recognize in the first seven verses of chapter 6 as Moses is giving the law to the second, for the second time to the second generation of Israel coming out of the Exodus, the importance of instructing their children in the law of God. And he says, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey, bringing them into the land that he had promised to give them and instructing them to be righteous in that land. Now they had asked for the perfect righteousness of God to be given to them and that they would do it. This is actually kind of a foolish move on their part. Because the law was given to them to show them then that they could not do it. The words that Israel cries up at the base of Mount Sinai is, tell us what your will is and we'll do it. Little did they know that in their flesh they would be, or it would not be possible for them to do it. But we see that for them to be successful in the land, they're to be faithful to God's righteousness. He says, you shall teach them, your children, diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your houses and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. God's word, his revealed will, should be present before them at all times. This is the rule of life for Israel in the land of Israel. But there's judgment because Israel will not always follow the will of God. They're told to go into this land to rid the land of all of these nations that had rebelled against God. Deuteronomy 18 and 20, all of these wicked practices of choosing other gods instead of God, 
and of corrupting themselves within themselves, and Israel follows suit. Rather than destroying all these nations, as God had told them, they adopted many of these practices. And it led them away from the word of God. It led them away from dependence on God and his revealed will so that they would make their own will. And even as far back as Deuteronomy, before they enter into the land, Moses predicted by the word of God that Israel would fall into cycles of judgment because of disobedience, but would also experience partial blessing until the fullness of that blessing comes in at the fulfillment of a new covenant. But in Ezekiel 14, we see an important principle about how God deals with generations individually. We see how God is going to judge nations, but he is not going to leave them without descendants or without a remnant. We see this in Sodom. We see this in Israel. He says, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by, uh, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. He brings in the example of three very righteous men, both positionally, of course, by means of faith, but also practically. Their positional righteousness through faith has actually worked its way into their activity. But their own righteousness is only able to save themselves individually. They are, or they would be, a remnant in any of these nations that had turned their backs on God. And so they were. Job, we see him as a unique figure in the Old Testament. He's not part of the nation of Israel. We don't see him in any of these genealogical records of the lines of Shem, especially. But yet here he is, a man who trusts in the one true God. And he is righteous because of it. And he acts righteously as well. When all of his friends fail to understand the righteousness of God, Job is faithful and ready to learn it. Noah, being the, the last righteous man on earth prior to the flood, only able to save himself and his family with him. Daniel hauled off to the land of Babylon because of Israel's unfaithfulness and one of their cycles of judgment. All of these are able to deliver only themselves. That is to deliver physically from God's judgment. He continues, if I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they uh, depopulated it, and it became desolate so that no one would pass through it because of the beasts. Though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered. But the country would be desolate. Or if I should bring a sword on the country and say, let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could, or they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered. Finally, or if I should send a plague against the country and pour out my wrath in blood on it to cut off man and beast from it, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. 
Now this was written in what, 500 BC? 585 BC? Thank you, he's teaching through Ezekiel right now. Well, Abraham is being instructed in this sort of righteousness and the necessity of being righteous before the Lord as a nation in 2000 BC. 1,500 years later, this lesson is remembered by Ezekiel, but not applied by Israel. It is taught to them not as something new, but as something they should know, something they should remember. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague to cut off man and beast from it. Ezekiel wrote during the cycle of judgment in which Israel is hauled off by Babylon. Because of their unfaithfulness to God's word, they came into the land, they enjoyed God's land, but they did not heed God's word. Instead, they rebelled against him. They chose other gods. They set up other idols. They set up or left up the high places of the Canaanites, and they continued to worship and sacrifice to other gods. But the doctrine of the remnant. God says, yet behold, survivors will be left in it. God has promised that he will not destroy Israel. He will not wipe them off from the face of the earth because he has a purpose through them that only they can fulfill. And that purpose does not end at the production of the Messiah because it will be Israel's responsibility to enthrone the Messiah over the nation of Israel. Without a nation of Israel, without people of Israel, you have no one to call the Lord back. You see, we as the church call him back every day. We cry aloud along with John at the end of Revelation where he says, even so come Lord Jesus. The reason Jesus doesn't return is not because the church doesn't want him here, it's because Israel doesn't want him here. And until Israel turns to their Lord, turns to their Savior, turns to their Messiah, there is no throne on earth for him to sit on. Because the church is not a nation. The church is not a kingdom. The church has no throne. God placed the throne for the Messiah in Israel. He says, yet behold, survivors will be left in it, who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Behold, they are going to come forth to you, and you will see their conduct and actions. Then you will be comforted for the calamity which I have brought against Jerusalem, for everything which I have brought upon it. Remember in Genesis 15, 13, even before, or before the finalizing of this covenant, what is said? God told Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. You see, this covenant with Abraham is a covenant promising preservation, the glory of God in the eventual success of his covenant as he fulfills it. But it does not promise that every turn of Israel is going to be met with faithfulness from Israel. God will continue to be faithful, but Israel will go through cycles of judgment. In Deuteronomy 29, towards the end of that book that Moses wrote to the sons of Israel going into the land to live well in the land, we read, therefore the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. 
And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is to this day. This is looking forward to what will be said in the future about Israel. When people look at Israel and they see its desolation, people would say the Lord's anger burned against it. He cast them into another land. And then Moses correlates that with their time away from the land in Egypt. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. And then he says, So it shall be when all of these things come upon you. You see, even from the very beginning of Israel's time in the land, it was predicted that there would be times where they were punished, castigated, because of unfaithfulness, even to the extent that they be sent out of the land for a time. It says, The blessings and the cursing, or the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. Now, this isn't by sheer willpower. You see, what God is expanding upon in the Torah and then continues to expand upon, especially in the prophets, is that the law of Moses gives them no ability to keep the righteousness of God. It just teaches them the standard of it. It teaches them that God is absolutely perfect and man cannot live up to his standards. But here he promises that he will restore them. That he will enable them. And as we see in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, that God will actually pour the spirit upon them so that they will be able to do the things that God requires of them. Now, I don't have the verse here, but remember the other unique quality of that in, Gen in Jeremiah 31, that no longer will they teach each other God's word because it will be in their hearts. Here, the law of Moses had to be taught generation to generation to generation. God's righteousness had to be taught generation to generation. But with the coming in of the new covenant, there will be no need because it will come through the actual regeneration of each individual in that nation. This looks forward to the new covenant, the new covenant which belongs to Israel, which will be fulfilled finally in Israel, which we today experience partially because of our relationship to the Messiah of Israel. And so he says, your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will bring you back. This land is for them for a permanent possession, but they have a responsibility to act righteously in this land. They will see again and again and again that they are unable to do this by their own power. And when they come to that understanding and they receive the righteousness of the Messiah, rather than trying to produce righteousness on their own, God will bring them into the land. He will regenerate them physically so that they are able to stand righteously before the Lord in intimate fellowship. One of the most important lessons they can learn here is righteousness. 
the purpose so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him, all of the promises and blessings of the covenant. Well, now we move to the investigation. We see God beginning pedagogically to teach Abraham about justice. And so the Lord said the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. He heard the cry of injustice. And so he goes to investigate. Now this outcry, this Yitzhakah, uh, is actually related to the crying um, of the, the earth when the, it receives the blood of Cain way back in Genesis 4. But it's also related to the crying or the cries of laughter for Isaac, Yitzhak. It's, this Zaak is that same as the Yitzhak. And so we have to look at the context to see how do we know this is outcrying that is different from Abraham's outcry of laughter. Well, the context shows us that the outcry of Sodom is because of their sin, which is exceedingly grave. It's put in parallel here so we can see that it is really the same thing. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is indeed great, is because of their sin, which is exceedingly grave. This is no new information to us. It's no surprise. Moses had put it in as an editorial note here back in Genesis 13.10, showing us the folly of Lot choosing this city showing that Lot didn't choose a city that was in good standing that then deteriorated, but he chose to hitch his wagon to a city that was a re rebellious city against God. And so Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, and this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. This was the character of that nation. And Lot chose willingly to live there. And now he needs rescue from that city. And the Lord says, I will go down now. Here in Genesis 18.22, a few verses forward, we'll see that the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Two of these three men go towards Sodom while the Lord stays behind. The Lord lingers. The Lord has said he is going to go down now, but his going down is not part of the two men going down. Some commentaries will say that God, in sending his emissaries, did go down, but he himself did not actually go down. But when we get into chapter 19, we see that the purpose of these two angels going down into Sodom was not to see if Sodom really was as bad as it was, nor was it to bring judgment. The purpose of these two angels going into Sodom was to rescue Lot and his family out of it. God himself is going to go down just as he went down to see Babel. God is going to bring judgment, and these two rescuers go ahead of him. He is going to go down for the purpose of seeing if they have done entirely according to its outcry. He heard the testimony that injustice had been done, and he went to seek it out. 
Now God is able to see and to judge perfectly, but we see and we judge according to God's standard. God judges according to his own standard. So God is teaching him about the standard of God here. But we remember back in Genesis 11, 5 through 6, that God followed the same process when judging the nations of Babel. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. So he says, Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language. After he saw, then he pronounces the judgment. The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. God is able to know if the statement is true or not. All right, lastly, and this is the bulk of the verses, but it actually is the shortest part of the sermon because Abraham is incredibly repetitive here. So we don't actually need to pick apart every single line and every single verse. I see a lot of relief out there. But we should note that when these two men go down, God lingers behind. These two angels, they turn away from there where Abraham was speaking with Yahweh, and they went down towards Sodom. We see them arriving around evening. This is the same day that Abraham had lunch with these gentlemen, and the same day after the early evening that they stood up on the hillside and looked out towards Sodom. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Yahweh has separated himself from these two men at this point. Now some take issue with this, because when you see the separation of the two men, you should see the next thing is, okay, well, what happened to Yahweh? But the next thing we see is what happened to Abraham, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Naturally, in the progress of this statement, we would expect to see something about the Lord spoken. So while the Lord was standing before Abraham, this is, or we are told at least by the Masoretes, that this was the original reading of this text. We have three pretty good Old Testament or Hebrew texts of scripture, and the Masoretic text is one of the most well-attested. The Masoretes protected their word and preserved it and took detailed notes about everything that happened to it. And there are, they say, 18 words in the entire Old Testament called tikkun passages, which were changed by Ezra, corrected by Ezra, they would say. They claim that this is one of those passages, that originally it said that Yahweh stood before Abraham, but that Ezra saw this as blasphemous, and so he changed it to Abraham standing before God. Now, while this is very well attested by the Masoretes, it probably is not true. The Masoretes did not, uh, were not inspired. They were preservers of the word in the AD period, not in the BC period, after the canon was closed. Their claim was that here, Ezra only changed the word order, not changing actually any words, and that he did so because of blasphemy, because it would put God as the, in the position of Abraham's servant rather than Abraham in the position of God's servant. And so they said Ezra changed it. The problem is 
one of many is there are no manuscripts that support this. We have nowhere anywhere but this note by the Masoretes saying that it used to say this. So we have no manuscript evidence of this. Then the Septuagint, which was translated during the Old Testament period, or about 300 BC, the Targums of the Jews, the Vulgate, written in Latin, the Samaritan Peshitta, all of these attest to the form that we see in our text today. None of them have this different reading that the Masoretes say used to exist. As well, if Ezra did indeed change this word order, he would have done so under the uh, inspiration of God prior to the closing of the Old Testament canon. After the Old Testament is closed, that is no longer possible. So if it is true, it's a good thing we don't have any extant manuscripts because those would have been incorrect. But Ezra, being inspired by God to write the book of Ezra, for one, operates under the authority of God in recording God's written will and word to men. Also, as noted before, this is not what we expect to see. We don't expect to see God dealing with Abraham rather than dealing with Yahweh here in the separation of these three men. So this is the harder reading of the text. There is no reason to change a harder reading or a, an easier reading to be a harder reading, but to change a harder reading to be easier to read. And so whenever we have the harder reading, that is more likely the original reading. All this to say, well, actually one more thing, uh, this actually isn't blasphemous, and it's not impossible, because in Exodus 17.5, actually 17.6, we see the Lord speaking to Moses said, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb. God is able to stand before man. God is able to serve man, and he does this as an example to us of serving. God is a humble God for all the glory that he is due. And it is because of his humility that he is due glory. I mean, look at Philippians chapter 2. Our pattern of humility is the humility of Christ coming down in the form of human flesh to die for mankind. His humility even leading him to an incredibly cruel death on the cross. God is a humble God. So short of the Masoretes thinking this is beneath God, it points towards God's glory. Finally, in uh, chapter 19, verse 27, we see an agreement with the text as it stands because it says that Abraham rose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. So it appears that this is the original. Uh, so all that to say, no correction. This is accurate. The Masoretes uh, probably were incorrect in making this note. All right. Let's see. You know, I don't think we have time to keep going, but we will keep going next week. So uh, let's finish with a word of prayer. But before we do that, I will remind you of what our main point was this morning. God takes the opportunity of timely judgment on Sodom to instruct Abraham concerning righteousness, justice, and mercy. Abraham, as the seminal head of a new nation, was given an example of extreme national judgment, made possible by the perforation of nations at Babel, and God will exterminate nations which oppose him on earth 
Abraham takes the opportunity to learn about God's character and to test the doctrine of a faithful remnant. That's the part that we will see next week, Abraham taking this opportunity to learn more about God and his character. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful and intimate episode between you and Abraham. We thank you that as we see Abraham, a friend of God, uh, being brought in on your plan so that you can teach and instruct him. We recognize that this is what you have done by giving us your word in written form in scripture so that you can teach us and instruct us what you have planned for the future that we might also be called friends of God. We do praise you uh, for all of the wonderful gifts of grace that you have given to us. We praise you for the glory that is rightly due to you. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.